This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone. My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod with Maxwell Vogue. How are you doing, Max? I'm good, Joris. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, uh, yeah, everything is well. How are you? Everything? That's good. You sound very zen, so I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, beginning of the weekend, and now I'm looking forward to this, and uh, yeah. Good. And who do we have on the 3D pod today? Well, we've got Dwan Scott on the 3D pod, uh, and Dwan was with us before, and he is a consultant, a designer, uh, and he right now is executive director of the 3MF Consortium. And also a program advisor, uh, something called APT at MIT. And he's also the founder of Bits to Atoms, which is like a consultancy uh, about, you know, design, defam, uh, additive manufacturing, that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, and we're going we're gonna to talk to Dwan again. So that's good. So, so welcome back, uh, Dwan. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And uh, so first off, like, tell us a little bit about, well, let's talk about this, this thing. Uh, you're working on a thing with MIT. So what is that? I'm working on two things at MIT. So the, the major thing is probably the education program. So we have AMX, which is a 12-week online course in additive manufacturing. And I also help out with APT, which is a partnership program to help accelerate the adoption of additive manufacturing for, for industry. Okay, well, how does that work then? Do I, do I, do I, uh, for my company that wants to partner with you, how does that work? Do I pay you? Yeah, no. we, we have, we have sort of two sides of the equation. So, uh, one side is the people who sort of contribute either machines, materials, software, or services. And then the other side is those who come to MIT to seek advice on how to accelerate their adoption. So, uh, MIT is building out two new R&D labs at the, in, in Boston. One for focus on polymers, one focus on alloys, and we're sort of building out a number of machines there, so we can start doing some R and D, and then sort of process validation and design optimization there. So what we can do is we can, if someone has a, a concept they need to realize, they can come and speak to some of the the researchers and staff at MIT and some of the students, and we can sort of look at your look at your project and and help advise you on how to bring it to market, both on the design, the manufacturing process, materials, and then also like a cost analysis to make sure it makes business sense. Okay, okay. So it's like kind of like consultancy, implementation, kind of, but okay, when yes. you're talking about partnership, yeah. is, it, is it kind of more, I want to develop a new process, or more like, hey, I'm trying to make 3D printed handrails, let's help me do that, or is it like, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me get started? Well, what's the kind of stuff that, that you're most interested in with that APT thing? Uh, it's, it's more about bringing products to market. So we, it, it was started, I think, in 2015 and was kind of put on hold during COVID. So uh, the, the program was, had, hadn't been developed and there wasn't any engagement for the past you know, three years. And so we're just sort of booting this back up again now. And the idea is to have people from like all sides of the equation coming in and just getting some of the MIT's expertise to help you know, speed things up and making sure people don't go the wrong path and try and adopt a technology which isn't 
either ready or if there's a better process to be using, we can help guide you in that direction. So it won't be doing any actual you know, design work for the companies. It will be helping them to understand how to do it. And then we can help with some like prototyping and process. But then when it comes time to production, then we'll sort of re- we'll recommend um, someone who can scale the process for you for when it's time to you know, really make these things for real. I'm curious on the course stuff too. I mean, these are separate, two separate things, right? Yeah, Just they're separate clear. things. Yeah. 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 So on the course stuff, what are you, what is it that you guys are covering? Like, is there a focus, or is it just a general? What it's, the heck is three yeah. D printing? <laughs> the, 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 yeah, the course is quite broad. So but I started uh, helping out with this like about this time last year, so twelve months ago. And I'd been in the AM space for like 15 years, and so I've had a, you know, I've I've tried to learn as much as I could in those years. And even when I went when I went through the coursework, there was there was so much that I learned because it goes, it's it's very broad in that it approaches all of the different manufacturing processes, the, the major ones anyway, and then has you know the machines, material process, the software side of things, some simulation. We we do some generative design slash topology optimization using currently Fusion 360, and there's sort of cost analysis of going through the the process of taking some parts and sort of seeing what they would cost using different AM manufacturing processes so you can sort of evaluate what's going on. So for someone who, even for someone who's been in the industry for a, a fairly long time, I think we typically end up going like deep into a T, you know, so you become an expert in a certain machine, material or process, and then you may not have a proper understanding of what's going on in other areas. So for someone who's already in the industry, it's it's helpful to sort of broaden out your understanding of what else may be possible. Or if you're just looking to just learn from, from scratch, it sort of stops you from going down the dead ends of, of reading, you know, marketing material and thinking you can have a magic box, which is going to make anything you want. You know, there's design constraints. There's material constraints. <laughs> there's there's no no potential. no. It's a magic box. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's kind of it really helps. And and what's interesting is the the students who come through have a really broad range of experience to no experience. So we get people who come in thinking they're going to learn how to use the magic box to make to bring something to market with no experience and and expect to you know make a million dollars with their widget that they have thought of and then we have people who you know work in aerospace companies who are pushing the edge of what's possible with a certain machine and material and just want to broaden out their their understanding of what other processes they should be thinking about so you know it's a, a bit of and we don't go very very deep into any one particular subject it's because it's you know 12 weeks and there's a, a lot to cover but it is right. a really broad a really broad sort of understanding of things and i think in the future there may then it may be um something we could do is to do a deeper dive on certain um applications or certain aspects of the additive manufacturing space but for now this is just a, a completely broad all encompassing sort of as much as we can jam into 12 weeks you're saying okay so broad experience is there anyone that is there an ideal student or something like that or could it really literally be anyone off the street kind of thing yeah i think anyone who who is like serious about using or exploring additive manufacturing to to uh, get something made and you know just like the industry if it's going through from prototyping to jigs and fixtures to production i think if you're just at the prototyping stage it may help you sort of get an idea of what you can use to do that 
but I'd say it's more for as you're sort of escalating up that the the part of more advanced processes. So you know if you if if all you want to do is run an FDM machine to make some little widgets, you you might not need to do this course. But if you want to like seriously, you know, understand what's possible, then I think it's it's worth it. And is there any technology you do more than the others, or is it literally like we should go kind of like a broad overview? Or uh, I'd say that there's it's it's a broad overview, but the cost analysis is around SLS and laser powder bed fusion more than other aspects at this point in time, just because we have we had more. I think when they developed the course, they had more data on that that they could use, uh, and we we keep on updating the course as we go, like every. Every every cohort, we we you know update what we can. So I'd say the cost side of things is more SLS and laser powder fusion, but everything else is very broad. We, t- we touch on all the processes. Okay, you say twelve weeks. Is that twelve weeks full time or twelve weeks, and then I have a lot of homework. What's the you know the load it's, there? Yeah, it's twelve <laughs> weeks. <laughs> it's twelve weeks online. So we have we have some students who 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 get the access to the coursework and just sprint through and do everything in a, in a, like three weeks. And we have some who are working up to a deadline, but I'd say typically they probably spend between five and eight hours a week working on, on the, on the homework. So it's all online. We have office hours where we have time to answer questions for students. And honestly, my favorite part is when we go off script. So we typically talk about the, the assignments that, that are due. So there's, a number of you know graded assignments which you have to pass to get the certificate. So we we walk through the assignments um, online for those who can join. You know because people are from all around the world, we can't have everybody. Like some people do dial in from from India at at one a.m. their time and to to try and learn. Uh, but we also then sometimes just like peel off and just answer people's questions, which is my favorite part because the reason why I want to be involved in this course in the first place is to understand what people wanted to learn why and what their applications were and so those conversations are really interesting to me and we can sort of that's when we can deep dive into another area so if someone has a really specific question that they want to have answered then if i don't know the, the answer i'll do some research or find an expert who who does know the answer and get back to them and will help them in that way as well so although the course is very very broad if someone has a deeply technical question, then we'll dig in and find out and try and help them out. Okay, that's interesting to me as well. Like, what are some of the applications or areas that people are looking at now? Then we we the ones who are sort of obviously the most advanced are people in aerospace and, and automotive, consumer electronics. Uh, we don't have a lot of people come through on the medical side yet that I've seen, uh, but you know the, the most major areas. And then we have some who are who are manufacturing engineers who are just on you know, like factory tools and so there was one guy for a large um what can i was a cosmetic company had a factory in brazil i'm gonna say who somehow managed to get budget for a desktop fdm machine and made a, a bunch of components to help the manufacturing process just like augmenting the existing designs that the mechanical engineers made for the factory process and did some cost calculation and his you know a thousand dollar investment saved two hundred twenty thousand dollars a year in processing time in the first year so so just like the things that aren't you know particularly they're not the aerospace 
high performance designs that we like to see at trade show booths but these are like small little things which makes expensive things work better which can save you know hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just from one guy who's took the initiative and is is making these little manufacturing aids and i think that's what we need to not lose sight of in the additive manufacturing space is that we of, we often see people chasing the mass production when there's so much value that can be created from a small part which helps a, another big part do something would otherwise be you know expensive yeah i, th- I think the tip <laughs> of the spear thing is 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 yeah it's so you know the, the focus is on the mass production or indeed like the stuff that's really expensive per kilo but like yeah just if you make if you save a process but from uh can't be too specific but uh if you save this process <laughs> from using too much gasoline for example and you just reduce the number of gasoline or if you have a filter and the filter doesn't clog as much right yeah, or you have yeah. a lower maintenance interval it's all this kind of stuff that people yeah th- there's so much there to be explored i think yeah there's, there's so much in just like assembly and manufacturing that doesn't you know it doesn't make it into many people's case studies it doesn't make it into you know it doesn't make it into into any marketing content but it's the honestly the stuff that's making additive manufacturing really valuable in places that that isn't the you know the the high value aerospace parts and it's easy to lose sight of that when we're trying to you know tell a a, a narrative about the value of additive manufacturing yeah, I talk about the, there's an article I wrote about this called the tip of the iceberg problem where we're all talking about the same stuff. Yeah. And because we're all talking about the same stuff, it's even worse than you said, because like everybody's talking about the same stuff. And because of that, everyone thinks that that's what there is. And then they develop materials for the same stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and then they develop machines and settings and all this stuff. And everyone's chasing the same uh, things. And some of them are the biggest high value stuff, uh, things like, that I've worked on from like years ago, either like super duper specific, uh, or I we still can't talk about, you know. And mm-hmm. and there's there, there's certain like applications, things that like the, one of these examples. The, the, the cool thing about this is that I can't actually explain this really well <laughs> because we can't talk about this stuff, right? And one of the few areas where we can is, for example, is 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 there's a lot of interest in the nuclear industry. And a periodic now they're talking about it a little bit, but you have to understand, of course, the nuclear industry isn't like, you know, they're not super PR minded <laughs> when compared to, to to a lot of other companies. And and but there's so much stuff going on there, and it's really specific parts, and it really we really shine in these applications. But because we don't talk about it, no one does anything for it, you know. And and there's so much stuff going on that we don't know. Uh, anyway, so I, so uh, I didn't, I, I'm curious, I'm sorry, I didn't even know we were. The, there was that much going on in the nuclear side of things. Is it just because like Mark One and Mark Two reactors aren't really made anymore, and you have to make old parts, or is it that we can now make things that are because it's more resistant to radiation? What's the uh, there's just uh, there's just so much spare parts. There's so many spare parts. Yeah, yeah spare, so it's parts, a spare parts problem. Yeah, yeah. The, the 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 plant is rated for thirty years, right? It takes right five billion to to build, and now it's costing right, right. ten. You're billion, not going to make another right? one, right? So either you have to build it faster, or you have to figure out a way to repair stuff. Uh, that uh, and and they have a big problems with uh, like vendors that are out of the business or uh, parts that can't be made because uh, because I don't know they were made thirty years ago and then uh, yeah, they made it's a, it's a classic parts, parts problem. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Anyway, um, but but I love that. Uh, anyway, so about the course, so it's twelve weeks. It, but okay, wait, wait. So the burden's like a couple of hours a day, and then there's also a couple of hours of class time. Like, like, what's the total? Like, what am I actually going to be spending on this? Like, time wise, every every week. 
I'd say you would need to spend like eight to ten hours a week on this. Okay. There's uh, the the, no, the office yeah, hours. Yeah. The office yeah, hours are optional. It's, it's one hour, and we record them so you can what see it in your own time. You know, obviously, yeah. and we have a discussion board so you can just ask questions. And then there, we try and encourage uh, the students to connect with each other and sort of help each other learn from each other. And then we have a, an alumni group on LinkedIn so you can continue the conversations and connections afterwards. Uh, and and the course, you know, it ramps up as you go through the course. So we start off with basic understanding of all the different processes, what the machines, materials, software all do, what the some of the applications are, some of some of how you know people are adopting AM. And then towards the end you're doing case studies on business model and design. And the design side is using at this point Autodesk's Fusion three sixty generative design. And we we provide the the setup for you, like the jump the starting geometry, and then you run the the generative process in the cloud, and then we get you to evaluate the solutions that are that are put out from that. So you don't need any three D modeling skills. You don't any. You don't really need any prior experience with additive manufacturing. Even you don't need a three D printer to do this. You can start from from scratch, having no exposure at all, and and you could easily successfully do this course. All you need is a computer that can you know access the internet, and you should be good to go. Okay, okay, okay. And then mm. it's just expensive. It sounds expensive, Dwan. No, it's it's great value. <laughs> I should do the price off the top of my head, but I think it's around $2,000 for the certificate course. Okay, okay, okay. And then, wait, wait, there's different levels of course? What's no, the difference? No, just the one level, oh. just one level. Yeah. Oh, go, go, go. Okay. All right, all right. Okay, two grand. Okay, something like two grand. It could be, that, that could be really yeah, cool. And and a then, lot of, that includes everything, right? That includes everything. And most of the time, um, people's employers pay for them to go through it right and we have sure. we have some companies who will send you know 20 people at a time to do the course and in those cases i'll typically you know sort of see i can i can often tell by the the questions that are coming through the discussion board you know if, a, if there's a a more advanced group and then i'll sort of split them out and i'll have some conversation with them separately so i can sort of make sure i'm not that i'm addressing their needs as well so it's Therefore. it's quite yeah it's quite common for us to have you know 20 people from a major aerospace company taking the course or something like that. They form a click and then you have to break up the click. <laughs> I actually encourage the click. They encourage the click. <laughs> because um, often they, they don't actually uh, even know each other from their own yeah. company. Oh, fair, 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 fair. And so this is the way for me to go, oh, you have colleagues. I just have, this, I have this image in my head of a bunch of guys wearing SpaceX leather jackets, like snapping their fingers. Well, some Blue Origin guys like walk by, yeah. <laughs> and then they and they and they um, break they into tussle. song or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have to break into song about rockets. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've had other occasions where I've been in on location doing a an education session at a um, service bureau where they invited their clients through, and there was three competing uh, aerospace companies in the room, and they were all like deadly silent the whole time. And then uh, once uh, two of the companies left, there was one left behind. It's like all these questions started coming up. They just completely shut down until uh, <laughs> until they were alone. <laughs> but because this is online, we don't have that you know that face off. Right. You can just they can just message me and i can answer the questions and everything's fine yeah and 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 you think because the one thing is like okay so it's it's completely online 
But is it, you know, it, it seems like it could be more convenient, but do you think it has a quality of that, that kind of, you know, because in other, you know, there aren't that many other examples, but I could go somewhere and I could be live with these people and hang out with them and stuff like that. You know, do you think you capture that with the online course or? You know, I think that there is no beating in-person conversations. So I think in the past, MIT has done um, like an extensive where you come in for a few days and have that in-person um, education as well. But this is just a way to scale way beyond what we can do in person. And as I mentioned, there's people who take this in the UK, Germany, India, Australia, Saudi, all around the world, every time there's a, a massive mix. So we can just reach so many people that would be just impossible to do in person. And you know you don't get that hands-on experience with any machines with this course. It's just not possible to scale to as many people. We've had you know, thousands of people come through this course already. So it's just a way to get as, as many people up to speed as possible, as quickly as possible. I was say, have you found it as you've been teaching it that the people, I mean, you're, you're already catering to a pretty knowledgeable base, but are you attracting, I guess, more and more people that have more and more experience or is it really that you're attracting it's, more and more people that are desperate to like know more about this industry? Yeah, it's actually both. So as I said, there's a, the groups that come through who are like sort of broadening their, their expertise and there's some who come through from scratch. But, but I guess, know, are you seeing as, more of one group than another group? I mean, I, I realize that you, you cater towards kind of who's in the class, so to speak. So if you had more advanced people, you're going to could probably do more advanced stuff but I'm, the coursework's kind of set the, the coursework's yeah, set fair. so we so where it where it diverges is in our office hours and in the discussion boards so, so that's where we can right. sort of expand out and explore different things but the the coursework is the coursework and they need to sort of do that to get their certificate and i'd say it's for someone like me who's been in this space for a while most of right. the people i know know a lot about additive manufacturing and it's and it's just like we're talking about details and nuances rather than as broader strokes typically and so for me it's interesting to see the people who need to sort of get that broad stroke understanding from scratch if you know you you guys have been doing this for over 10 years as well and some people still have like a 2013 understanding of what's going on in the space and it's to me i was a little bit shocked in the first you know, couple cohorts that I taught that people just did not understand. Some people did not understand anything, like anything at all. So there's still this need to give this base level education, which is, I guess, true throughout, you know, all of education. So what I've seen sort of evolve is we have, there's a lot of interest in STEM education. So in, in high school, kids are getting access to machines and they're doing some some prototyping and some maybe some projects with using access to a 3D printer, a desktop printer typically, maybe like FDM or SLA seems to be the primary things that are going on. And then uh, once they graduate high school, if they go to mechanical engineering at a university, they may have some sort of additive manufacturing coursework in there. You, what, they, what I've seen is it's um, very process-based. So we don't see much on the design and cost analysis. Mm. And then it, it stops. There's nothing else until you have some postgrads doing, some PhDs doing some super in-depth research into something super technical about some laser power material combination to make X material. But there's sort of nothing in between. And there's nothing. So the, the sort of like on-the-ground education 
for someone who is going to become a, a, either a designer or a process engineer, there's a kind of a, still, a, a gap in education. And I think we're trying to get the broader aspect of it here with the online MIT course so that more people can step up and get past the, the STEM, the base level STEM prototyping side and get up into that next stage so they're workforce ready and can be trained in a specific process after that. You keep yeah. saying we, we, we. So it's not only the Duan chart. <laughs> are there other people helping here? No, uh, well, I didn't make the course. It, it, was, it was developed. <laughs> I just teach it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just a teaching assistant. So the course works. Oh, fair out. enough, fair enough, fair enough. Um, John Hart developed it uh, a, a few years ago, I think five years ago now. And he just got named head of the whole entire mechanical engineering department at MIT this week. So congratulations to John. Um, so he developed it, and we have colleagues. Uh, Zen Abbey uh, is also a teaching assistant who helps on this course, and um, so and um, Rob as well. I don't know his last name in the UK. He's also helping out. So we just sort of help guide the students, but the the coursework was written, and you know we'll go through and update information as as we go through the course. So as the materials process change slightly, you know, who's been acquired by who changes, we sort of update that so it's as up to date as possible. But it is definitely not my I did definitely not did not write this work. It was you know John Hart. Yeah. <laughs> but do the, all these people like like John Hart and stuff, do they actually talk to the students or stuff like that? Are available in some way or Yeah, so join towards the start and end of the of the coursework and he's you know, he'll be on the discussion board sometimes but it's primarily Zen and I who do most of the engagement with the students okay okay that's cool and then uh and you know is there an exam can I pass or fail how does it, how does that work I mean you can most you can pass or fail yeah but it's, it's coursework so there's a number of graded assignments in, in you we test your knowledge as you go through and then we have assignments on on design for am using generative design on cost analysis, and then you can do a case study, and you can choose between doing a cost analysis sort of business case study or a more design case study, and that's how you you go through. And most people most people pass. Uh, you just need to get above sixty percent to pass. So you know it's 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 a lot of work towards the end, but um, most people do make it through. And it's, it's actually, I, I checked I checked for it, it's like $2,300, right? This is ongoing or like, is it every yeah, week? We, or how, how does it work? We, I think, I think I should, we, I think we have four cohorts per year, I think. Yeah. So it, it happens on a regular basis, 12 week course. So we have a break, we check on everything, we update things and then run it again. I, I so for me, I sort of just like, um, once it once the course kicks in, I start engaging with the students and, and go through it, and then I have a break. And so it's like these waves of engagement for me, where I where I get to learn with these students, which is you know lovely. Like I really enjoy learning with them and sort of understanding what people's questions are and where that can sort of help me learn more as well, which is what what excites me about it. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. And then, and people can look at this up, right? It's called the full name is uh, I think it's Additive Manufacturing for Innovation, Design, and Production, right? It's a long name, yeah. That's it. Yeah, super long. Name. And uh, uh, I should have an acronym. Uh, sure thing, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> we we just call it, AMX. We call it AMX. <laughs> AMX. Oh, okay. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I got to get my AMX. Uh, yeah. Okay, good. 
Yeah, give me Amex for my Amex. Okay, and uh, okay, good, good, good. And uh, okay, that's cool. So you can check that out online. And yeah, but you're also you're not only doing all all that kind of stuff. You're also uh, heading up 3MF, right? So yeah, yeah, I, 3MF. I, yeah. yeah, I joined as technical. Uh, no, not technical. Uh, as executive director uh, late last year, just to help with awareness and adoption. So the the 3MF consortium has been going for since 2015. Uh, all the major CAD software and hardware companies in the additive space are, are engaged for the most part. And what what they've done is they've sort of pulled together a, a way of communicating data for additive manufacturing, which isn't just a dumb mesh file. If you want just a dumb mesh, which is just describing the outside of an object, we can do that as well. <laughs> and it's uh, it'll be a third the size of a STL file and it will always be watertight. But it's it's about communicating more than just that. So the, the, the core spec is is a mesh format um, that also carries other information like whether who made the design, what software it came from, any other information you want to embed with it. But then there's extensions for for material properties, for production, for color. Uh, we're working on a volumetric extension at the moment, which is both a, a, a voxel sort of a bitmap stack, which represents voxels and an implicit representation, as well as security. So you can lock down who has access to the the file and what they can make from it and how many times. And what the way I actually think about the 3NF Consortium it's bringing together all of the, the the people who are sort of pushing the boundaries of of the software and the machines, and how we can communicate with each other and sort of and help bring the data from design intent through to manufacturing intent. And the three MF file is, is like the product of this. So we we meet um, every two weeks and sort of discuss what needs to happen and how to do it and. Since I've joined, I've been sort of bringing in more guests to make sure that we get understanding from industry and other software companies who aren't part of the consortium. So we have the steering members, which is about 20 people. And then we now we also have associate members. The steering members, you know, commit code uh, and have voting rights. The associate members can also commit code. Everything is open source, but they don't get to vote. And together, we sort of are trying to provide what the industry needs to mature and grow and and make these things which wouldn't be possible if we just had a, a, a boundary representation. So one of the ones that I find most interesting, which is indicative of what's possible, is um, Additive Flow has software which optimizes the parameters inside of a part volumetrically based on AI and simulation. So if you have, it, it doesn't change the geometry, it changes what's going on inside. So you apply um, your loading, your requirements, and they will volumetrically um, map out the inside of that geometry with different parameter sets. So you, you say you want it to be like more thermally conductive in one area, you want it to be denser in a different area, you want it to be stiff in a certain orientation, then they'll optimize the volume of the geometry, then send that across as a volumetric 3MF to uh, NetFab's advanced toolpath utility, which will then apply a different laser parameter in each section. And so then when you manufacture the part, you don't have just a, a simple monolithic parameter set coming across or material coming out, 
but you have it optimized for performance within the part. And that wouldn't be possible without this volumetric communication of information. You, the, you, could, you could do it messily probably by having a series of like six or seven STL files sort of nested together and then assign different parameters to each one. But then at the boundaries of those two meshes, you can have issues. Whereas with this process, you could have a gradient of parameters. There's there's some machines, I, I can't remember the name, but I saw it at, at Rapid just a couple of weeks ago, who can print multi-material metal and um, you can blend between the powders. Uh, so one thing we've seen with DED is when you have two materials um, sort of combining together, at the intersection, you can have, I think it's called a bimetallic, which is a different material from those two when they're combined. And that can propagate cracking in that location. So by having, and that's because if you just like jamming up two different materials next to each other, using like two mesh files next to each other, those intersections can, can be problematic. But if you have a volumetric communication, you can blend between those two or like stagger them or dither them. So you can sort of have changed the way those materials blend to make it so they don't propagate cracks there. Now, this is the, like the most advanced sort of applications of it, but it's indicative of where we can go and what we need to be thinking about. And what the 3MF Consortium is really doing is like preparing for the future for when more people understand how to design like this and and what, what the applications are and what the value is. And also, I think it's also worth to know that like, okay, not only is this really cool as an academic exercise, but it's a real struggle for a lot of people. Like take this multi-material, the gradient yeah. parts example, what Aerosynth and all these technologies can do, and, and also DED and WAM. Uh, and and some of the the other uh, uh, an e beam can do this as well, yeah. Um, uh, and and Shaki Optimac and these kind of guys. Now it's not only interesting that they can now do it and that they can describe it and that now people can work with it apart from making separate SDL files and all this stuff, which was nonsense, of course. But they can go much further. And also the applications that are doing this is bimetallic parts. We're talking like the inside of aero engines. We're talking yeah. like yeah, um, yeah. Uh, armor, right? Composite armor, uh, you know, the, the skins of future spacecraft. We're talking like really, really high-end, really, really cutting-edge stuff that would really make sense for this. If you make something go up into space really quickly and it needs to then sense what's happening on the ground, uh, the, 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 the thermal gradient between being on Earth and being up at, you know, 30,000 feet is massive. So you need to control that, that distortion and doing it with like two materials just like next to each other isn't going to happen. So we need to design things which can sort of handle that thermal gradient and then stay stiff and still perform. But it's not just these, and that's like right on the cutting edge of stuff. But then there's things like ladder structures. You know, if someone's trying to communicate a, a complex ladder structure with a thousand unit cells, as a mesh, it's going to just kill whatever software you send it to to prepare for the print. Whereas the, the beam extension, we can get something which would be a two gigabyte file down to 600 kilobytes because we're just describing the ends of the beams and the diameter of the, of the, of the strut. And there's, there's some parts that we, we know that have been manufactured which are just impossible without using 3MF to communicate those complex structures. And we, we are seeing adoption increase, you know, a lot at the moment because people are pushing the boundaries and going part beyond the prototyping and 
you know, the, the jigs, which I like so much, into these high-performance parts, but we, we can't do it with a mesh. The next level that we're also looking at is implicit representation. So this was um, first sort of kicked off by uh, George at Entopology, which is just communicating geometry as a pure mathematic equation. So there was a project that Antop did with Siemens Energy where they designed a heat exchanger purely implicitly and when they sliced it, it was a 10 gigabyte slice stack, which is just going to kill anything, any machine you try and send it to. But when they communicated it directly to EOS's machine as implicit, it was 650 kilobytes. Because um, John at EOS, you know, who's on the 3MF consortium, developed a plugin for EOS print. Um, software, so it can take this pure implicit, and it can it can basically stream the mathematic equation and query it per layer and s- stream it to the machine. So it's it's way way more efficient for these complex geometries that just meshes will just not it just they just won't work. And you and you know we have some people say why don't you use step files because step files can't do it either. And if we do a if we do if we do a, a voxel grid. By the time you have a you know a 200 micron wall thickness and you need you know two or three voxels per wall, that becomes massive straight away. Like there's no way to deal with it in in any other way than you know, a pure mathematic equation to communicate this geometry. So yeah. now that we're looking at the the volumetric extension for 3MF, we've got a, a lot of interest. So. I think I got like 26 companies on the last call we had when we were trying to explore what people want from it. So the 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 pool from industry is there and um it's it's good that we have these otherwise competing companies working together to make this happen because the people who are working on it aren't political, they're not sales motivated. They're they're technology motivated. So they're they're making this happen for everybody. And I think it's just an amazing thing for our for our industry. So that's why I hope everyone supports it and reach out if if something's not working for you. Like we're doing the best we can. Any information we have from industry of what they need, we can mull over and see if we can incorporate it into the into the three MF format. But it's also extensible. So uh, if someone if a company needs to have other information for their workflow. You can modify the 3MF file to include that information. So companies like HP and Desktop Metal use 3MF to communicate within their systems. So not even about the consumer using it or the the engineer who's setting up the build, but just their their internal systems are all running on 3MF because you can track every part in the build, like where it is, what the parameters are, who it's for. So it's, it, it just has so much data you can embed in there. It, it just makes things scalable and, and repeatable and reliable. Okay, that's uh, super cool. Yeah. And also, but this, yeah. The, 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 yeah, I, th- I think that's, that's really going to be really very exciting. Also, because I was just reading this paper called, uh, you, you probably read this, the Shop E or Shape E paper, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, this conditional generative model using it uh, for, 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 for implicit functions that are created by a text prompt. So that's basically the guys, uh, that's from some nice people at something called OpenAI, which you probably never heard of. And, 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 and,
Yeah, exactly. So that's what Shap E. They had one before, which was, it was like a point E or something it was called, yeah. and that was not that great. Um, but Shap E is kind of like you know creating at least a kind of like you know based on a you know I want a bowl of gray fruit or whatever, and then you can create a three D model. So that to me is. Well, it's one of the most exciting things that that, that, that I've seen in a while, actually. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah. So I think this will, this will be published, put out after. So I've, I've organized an event in New York, June 14th, 15th, um, looking at computational design for advanced manufacturing. And I've got an, an entire afternoon dedicated to AI presentations and research because I think there's a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding about how AI can be used in engineering and how far those text to 3D are from function. So the, the text mm. to 3D are typically text to 2D to 3D. And so you're describing what something might look like. And so you can say you want a, a, a dog with a grapefruit on its head and it can do something like that. What it cannot do is say, I've got a force of X newtons on this thing and it has to be made out of some sort of material which has this sort of thermal properties and uh, solve my problem for me. And the problem is there's, there's, no, there's no engineering data. There's no warehouse of data. There's no physics uh, engine inside of the AI system right now. Not, not even physics. Like physics, that's simulation, right? So simulation would be one right. thing. But if we're talking about the way generative AI works, from my understanding at this point in time on whatever data is today, uh, we, we don't have a, a, a database of, of information about performance, material, process for for anything right for engineering so we we can't we can't expect to ask an ai to solve a problem if we don't feed it any meaningful data right so we can we can use simulation to synthesize to make synthetic data that we can then use to train but then uh, we're sort of reliant on going in between the space that the simulation has provided for us so we, we, to extrapolate beyond that is difficult. We need to do more simulation, and that becomes really computationally expensive. I think that's a good yeah. point you're making this. I think any kind of pushback on the AI is going to rule the world stuff is, is, is useful, I think. <laughs> There's a lot of... Um, in, in its and, mind, uh, it's going to yeah, rule the exactly. world. <laughs> Let's keep them thinking that they will rule the world. Exactly. <laughs> um, but, no, but I think, to me, the, the exciting bit of this is, okay, ultimately, of course, the idea of like... Uh, you know, d uh, intelligent CAD kind of, you know, doing all the solving. You just say how big, you know, the problem is, and then the CAD comes up. That's super exciting, I think. But, I mean, for now, I'm saying that there's about, let's say there's 2 million people that can do CAD, like a million paid licenses, a million downloaded on uh, torrent files and have to run like Rhino, right? <laughs> but 2 million people worldwide, right? And that's it. The 8 billion rest of the people can't do anything with this technology we always talk about everyone can make anything well kind of everyone yeah, can download can. a thing yeah, and then uh, right they can't Very actually make the custom thing so imagine like not where well, we're not super far ahead because like uh, you know i want a latch from my door this is the size of my door that's that's going to be really difficult but if i just want to say i want uh i met my friend mary you know, on the June. So I want an avocado with Mary written on it, or I want a blue avocado or whatever. That is much closer. And and to me, that is already very, very exciting. If we if we could just do it in a if you could capture that and translate it into like a jewelry 3D printing startup, you know? Sure. Or yeah. 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 That's a little bit closer. I, I, mean, I, than, I think yeah. the more the more that's you're right. I agree with you that that's the closer like thing. I think the more 
interesting thing though could be the ability to do like generative designs where you're saying like i have these constraints as, as stated and that you know i want to get a sphere to always roll down this tube in just the right way you know try it 500 times and simulate it each time and then pick the five best designs and then a human comes in and goes okay now we can like narrow it down even further i think that that would be my ideal of, of mm-hmm. this technology yeah, being able to actually that, that, produce that's computationally expensive so yes, running yeah, I totally get that. <laughs> so another another thing that we're seeing is so um, Carl Willis and his team at Autodesk are looking at CAD process. So instead of um, using AI to to like generate a solution, what they're looking at is kind of like Clippy for 3D CAD. So if you start, they've got all the historical data of everyone who used who's. Um, exposed Fusion 360, like the the modeling process. So mm-hmm. if you do a a, a, a circle, you're probably going to do an extrusion next. You're probably going to put a fillet somewhere. So those kind of those kind of things. And then, oh god, it's just made... like the predictive text system. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's so, assuming so, what you're going to do based off of what you. Yeah, yeah, okay. And yeah. and yeah. so that that makes sense to me. That like, and then right. assembly. So you've got these these two things which looks like they fit together. Do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to fasten them somehow? Like, do you need a, a bolt between these things? What size is it? You know, is it an M6 with such and such a thread? Like that, that seems to be, that's another way of doing it. So one is the performance, one is the process. I think that that'll be an easier way to get started for this because there's more data there. So everyone who's used Onshape, you know, in the, in the public uh, version, the free version, that's, that's data collection. You know they can they can look at all this and see what people's uh, process for modeling things are, and then you know extrapolate on that to to make these kind of tools. So it's kind of the other area where it's interesting. Mm. And then another researcher I'm speaking to, Chris McComb at Carnegie Mellon, is looking at how teams interact with AI in, in for solving engineering problems. So they developed a a I think it was a simple like designing a bridge kind of strut system. And the AI by itself could outperform the human, right? If the human and the the AI could help guide the humans on how to design this bridge, and the the the, the students who performed poorly without AI performed better with AI. The students who performed well without AI AI actually performed worse when they were collaborating. With AI as well. With the AI, interesting. Yeah. So it, it's they, uh-huh. they. So there's 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 some things to explore here on how we collaborate with yeah. each other and these tools simultaneously that aren't necessarily the way you'd think it would sort of roll out. So there's a lot to explore here, and and I think we're we're so early on in this stage of using this for engineering that um, it's worth you know taking some time and taking a breath. Not getting too excited that you know we're going to have we're going to have mid journey for rocket ships in you know, in six months time. It's not going to happen, but right. we should think about you know how we want to do this. Yeah, I'm worried about the unemployed engineer apocalypse. You know, only like millions. Oh of come on, that, that, ne- that never actually happens. Anytime a new technology comes out, then a whole bunch of other people are needed to maintain that technology. 
So it just shifts <laughs> yeah. the problem. <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let's see. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, uh, my problem is I don't have no outdoor ki- skills, you know? I just worry you, you have to hide. You can't survive no, in the woods. I, I know exactly. I can't survive in the woods. I'm not good in a cave. So I'm trying to get all these outdoor classes in before they get too popular. Cause, cause I just can't do all that hunting and making a fire and stuff. So we have to hide from the, the robots. I'm, I'm in trouble, dude. That's why I just like to say, I have an organization called Pax Robotica, which believes in the peace <laughs> that robots bring on earth and uh, has for a number of years now promoted the peaceful coexistence between robots and uh, humankind. You can join Pax Robotica too, and uh, we can live in peaceful harmony with robots who are our friends. And uh, yeah, on that note, um, thank you very much for, for being on the 3D pod. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, once again. <laughs> and, and thank you uh, for being here today, Max. Always, always a pleasure, George. Thank you for hosting. And thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this. And uh, this is the 3D Pod, and you have a great day. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint.com.